You know, uh, we, do, um, we do believe that God is the rock of our salvation, that the rock won't move, and, and then uh, we, uh, life hits and things change in our lives, and all of a sudden we feel like the ground's sort of shifting underneath us, and, and it's times like that 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 belief that we have, that uh, knowledge that we have of who God is gets really tested, and, and we have to decide, is that real uh, in my life? And so uh, we have been started this series last week called My Near-Death Experiment, and uh, uh, challenging ourselves to really think about our lives and, and what our lives are built on and what it would take in our lives to really change us, to, to live a life that, that, we, um, uh, that lives with expectation and a sense of urgency. Um, how would we change our life? How would we reorganize our lives if, if we knew how much time we had uh, left on earth? What would be different for us? And we, we kind of asked ourselves those questions last week, and, and we also asked ourselves this question. that um, We actually made this statement that uh, most great life changes happen one of two ways. They either happen through inspiration or they happen... Uh, uh, through desperation. And, and the idea is that sometimes we're inspired, sometimes we get this great thought, sometimes we're struck with something that's so profound, it's so important for us that, that it changes everything, it changes how we think, it changes how we believe, uh, it changes how we live our lives, and, and that's a life that's changed by inspiration, but more often than not, our life is changed by desperation, it's challenges, it's catastrophes, it's things that happen in our lives that are out of our control, and we find ourselves with the ground shifting under us, and, and, and we know that, that in our heads that Christ is the rock, but, but do we really believe it in our lives, of our, our lives built on that truth? And, and so how does real life change happen for us? And, and so I don't know about you, but I vote for inspiration over desperation any ch- chance I get, right? Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd rather change and, and, and learn that way than constantly being forced into such situations that are desperate, situations that are, uh, you know, catastrophes or challenges or whatever it is. Uh, and, and so that's what we want to look at. That's how we want to think about change uh, in our lives and real significant change. There's a great uh, story about a football coach named Tom Landry. Uh, passed away a number of years ago, but he was a <clears throat> famous football coach for the Dallas Cowboys. And they had all these championship teams and all these great players. And somebody asked uh, Tom Landry once, why is it there, there are a lot of really good athletes, but so few great athletes? You know, why, why are there a lot of really good football players, but so few great football players? And Tom Landry said, the answer to that is 18 inches. He, he said, the answer to that is the distance between your head and your heart. He said that there are a lot of athletes that know a a lot about being an athlete and they have natural ability and they, uh, you know, they know the rules and they know all of those things. But but the truly great ones are the ones that 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 head knowledge has gone to their heart, that they're passionate uh, about what they do. They're passionate uh, about their sport. Uh, they, 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 it drives them to work harder than anybody else. It drives them to stay longer, to get there earlier. Uh, it, it drives them to focus more than anybody else, to, to go through the really difficult things that, that others aren't willing to go through. And he said the difference between a really good football player and a great football player is 18 inches. It's the distance between the head and the heart. And if we really think about that, that's true for most of us who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus too, isn't it? that we know a lot about Jesus, 
that we have a lot of information about Jesus. We can talk about Jesus all day. We can, we can quote, you know, scripture. Maybe we don't know where it's found, but we can quote stuff uh, really well. Uh, in fact, we can even quote things that we think are in the Bible, but aren't really there exactly like God helps those who help themselves. You know, we have all of that stuff down, uh, but it's here. And the question is, how do you get it from your head to your heart? that that's where the passion comes from. That's where it says, you know what? Even when it's hard, I'm gonna follow Jesus. Even when it's frightening, I'm gonna follow Jesus. Even when I don't know where I'm going, I'm gonna follow Jesus. My life is gonna be driven by my pursuit of Christ, that I'm gonna organize my life around my relationship with him and, and what he means to me. And so, so that somehow this, this idea that we know a lot about Jesus, but it hasn't captured our heart yet, has to change for our lives to really be different. You know, and of course, we also know people who get it in the heart first and not, not in the head, and they just sort of live out there by passion. And that doesn't work either. But most of us know a lot about God, but that we don't connect that to the passion of our heart. And so in our near-death experiment, that's what we want to talk about. And, and this morning, we're going to do that using three stories, three vignettes, three lives how we connect our head to our heart. The, the first one that we're gonna talk about is a, a really uh, familiar story. It's, an, it's another familiar one. So I wanna encourage you as strongly as I possibly can to, to, to sort of try to wipe out everything that you already know about the story and, and think about Zacchaeus from a whole new perspective. So here's the story of Zacchaeus. Um, it begins in Luke, the 19th chapter, and it says, uh, referring to Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. So right away, we know three things about Zacchaeus. One, we know he has a really weird name that's hard to spell. So we got that part. The second thing that we know about Zacchaeus is that he was a chief tax collector. He wasn't your run-of-the-mill tax collector. He wasn't an ordinary tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. That means he was in management. That means that there were other tax collectors that were under him. But what we know historically about tax collectors is that they were hated by their own people. They were despised. They were considered traitors uh, by the Jews because they were hired by the Romans to cheat their own people, to cheat their own communities. And so they collected taxes for the Romans. And first of all, you're living in, you know, under oppression. You don't want to pay tax to the enemy, but that's what they had to do. And then the tax collectors could skim. They could charge a little bit extra and skim that, uh, those taxes off. And if you said, no, I'm not paying that tax, they had the whole Roman army that they could send to your house and you didn't have any choice. And so they were considered traitors by their own people. They were despised by their own people, and therefore they were outcasts in their own community, and that was Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and the, the last thing that we learned in this first verse is he was really rich, and, and the truth is that you were a really bad tax collector if you weren't rich, because you got to skim money. You, you got to cheat people. You, you got to get money and had the Roman army backing you up, so if you were a chief tax collector and you weren't rich, you were really bad at your job. That was Zacchaeus. So we know those things about Zacchaeus just from history and from this first verse uh, and the second verse. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Verse three, he was seeking to uh, see who Jesus was, 
but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So now we learn another thing about Zacchaeus is that he was a little guy. And, and he wanted to see Jesus, that he'd heard about him. He was still Jewish, even though he was a chief tax collector, he was still Jewish. He still had grown up hearing the stories that a Messiah was going to come, that God was going to rescue his people, that something great was going to happen. He heard the stories about Jesus. He couldn't help but wonder, could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? So he really, he wants to see Jesus. He's desperate to see Jesus, but he can't see him because of the crowd. Nobody's going to make room for him. Nobody likes him well enough. Nobody cares about him enough to make room for him. He can't see over the crowd, so he gets this genius of an idea. It says in verse 6, so he hurried, uh, so he, I'm sorry, in verse, uh, verse 4, he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Here's Zacchaeus. You know, he's wearing a Hickey Freeman toga. Do you know what that is? Right? thousand bucks just pop right there he's wearing a really nice toga he, he he's got you know alan edmund sandals on i mean he is really dressed he's a he's a wealthy guy he's got the best stuff he he's he's dressed up but he wants to see jesus he runs ahead of the crowd he climbs up into a tree he's hiding in the tree he's looking through the leaves because he wants to get a peek at jesus but he really prefer to do it anonymously so here's zacchaeus he can't see over the crowd. Nobody's going to let him in, but he wants to see Jesus, so he runs ahead. He climbs up into the tree, and then this happens. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place where the tree was, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus came and he stood at the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I need to stay at your house today. I'm going to go to your house. I'm going to break bread with you. I'm going to have a meal with you. You see, this is amazing on a lot of levels. First of all, Jesus somehow knew that Zacchaeus was there. He stopped at that very place. He, and then he called Zacchaeus by, uh, by name, and he invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. This is really important for us because a lot of us have grown up in the church, and we've grown up with this idea that somehow I found Jesus... And then I invited Jesus into my life. And, and it's all about me and it's all about what I did. But the truth is none of us come to Christ unless he finds us first. That he comes to us, that he calls us by name, that he invites us to come down and then we choose to respond or not. But, but he calls us and it's initiated by Jesus. Jesus came and he showed us how to live and he died on a cross and he rose again and now he stands before us and he calls us by name and he says, I want to have a relationship with you. That's how it happens. It's not about us. It's about him. He's the initiator. And so he calls Zacchaeus by name and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house today. And we read right away in the text that it says, um, so Zacchaeus hurries down and he came down and he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, the crowd, all the Messiah groupies that were walking down the road in Jericho, all of the people that were following him, that were crowding around him, trying to be close to him, when they saw that Jesus had called Zacchaeus they grumbled. It says they saw it and they all grumbled and said, he is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Shame on you, Jesus. He's gone to be the guest of a house of a sinner. If Jesus was really that great, if he was really Messiah, he would know who this guy is. He's a bad guy. He's a traitor. 
But Jesus calls Zacchaeus and it says Zacchaeus comes down joyfully. He comes down from that tree because Jesus has invited him. And Jesus said, I'm going to go into your house. And the scandal of that was to enter into someone's house, was to say, I want a relationship with you. I'm going to build a friendship with you. That we're, we're going to have a connection. We're going to be personal friends because we've sh- broken bread together. I've been in your home. To invite somebody into your home was a statement of saying, I want a relationship with you. I want to know you. Uh, you're important to me. Jesus is saying in front of all of those people, Zacchaeus, you matter to me. I want a relationship with you. Come down from the tree and let's go to your house. It's a powerful picture of what Jesus does, that he invites us into a relationship. You see, it's not enough to know a lot about Jesus. It's not enough to have a lot of information about Jesus. What Jesus really is looking for is a personal relationship with us. He says, I'm gonna call you by name. I'm gonna invite myself into your house. You choose to respond, but I want to know you. And he's saying it in front of this whole crowd because he wants them to understand that it's always part of the gospel. That Jesus wants to have a relationship with us, but he wants everybody else to know that if you want me, you get him too. That's why Jesus said, you know, love the Lord your God and also love your neighbors yourself, that we're all part of this together. It's about relationships. And so Zacchaeus comes down and he has this relationship with Jesus. He, he, he has his, his wake-up morning, his wake-up moment. Have you ever, have you ever had a, a wake-up experience? A wake-up call? I hate wake-up calls. I especially hate going to a hotel and having to call down and say, would you wake me up at this time of the morning because I know that I hate when that phone rings and I'm gonna wake up every hour all night long just, and then I'm gonna be awake an hour before that thing and I'm gonna be just looking at the phone when it rings, right? Uh, I, but wake up calls and, or, or else, you know, what else is gonna happen? I'm gonna be up an hour all night long and then I'm gonna sleep through the wake up call because I'm so exhausted, but we, I hate wake up calls but they're important in our lives. And this was Zacchaeus' wake-up call. He had to decide if he was gonna follow Jesus. He had to decide if he was gonna enter into that relationship with Christ. We've all been called by name by Jesus and we've had the opportunity to decide, am I gonna start a relationship with the God of the universe, with Jesus the Christ, the Messiah? That's his experience. And then Zacchaeus has this incredible moment because Jesus doesn't come to Zacchaeus and say, hey, Zacchaeus, here's the deal. This is what this looks like. I I need you to understand, I've got a statement of faith and I've got our doctrinal statement here and I I need you to look through it and make sure you get it. And then I want you to give half of your wealth to the poor, and then if you defraud anybody in the future, you're gonna pay them back four times as much, and, and that's what it looks like to be on my team. That's what it looks like to, to, uh, to be a follower of mine. And, and here's all the stuff you gotta remember and all the stuff you have to follow. That's, Jesus didn't do any of that. What Jesus did is he called Zacchaeus by name, and he said, I'm inviting you into a relationship, and you get to come as you are, because it's about the relationship. And when Zacchaeus entered into a relationship with Jesus, he had this wake-up moment. Everything changed for him, and all of a sudden, he looks at Jesus and he says, he has this moment of spontaneous generosity where he says, Lord, here's what I'm gonna do. 
I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor, and if I defraud anyone, I'm going to pay them back four times as much. My life has changed. I'm in a relationship with you. It wasn't the requirements. It wasn't the memory, that, something he had to remember. It was what came out of his heart because of who Jesus was, because of his encounter with Christ. And it was his wake-up call. The second one is another really familiar story. It's a story about Peter. And, and you know, we know a lot about Peter too, don't we? We know he was uh, the first disciples call, one of the first disciples called, and he was a fisherman, and we know that he was one of the leaders of the church. And we also know that, that Peter, you know, we, always, we talk about being a you know, ready, aim, fire person, and Peter was pretty much a fire, 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 fire. That was, that was what Peter was, right? He rarely thought before he spoke. Um, Peter was always getting out ahead of things. That there's a point where uh, Peter, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples that what's about to happen, that he's going to be arrested and he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be beaten and all of these things are going to happen. He's going to die. And, and Peter comes to him. Peter kind of puts his arm around Jesus and says, not on my watch, Jesus. I'm Peter. I'm your man. Nothing's going to happen to you. Stop talking nonsense. And, and finally, Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're saying. Of course, that never stopped Peter. We also know that there was a time when Jesus was arrested and he's in the court of the temple and, and people begin to recognize him and a, one young woman says, I know you were one of the disciples and, and we find out that Peter betrays Jesus three times. He denies that he knows him. He swears that he doesn't know who he is, that he has no idea. He's just there. He just happens to be there. And he betrays Jesus in his own way. We know all of those stories about Peter. And then Jesus rises from the, the tomb. And Peter's overwhelmed by what's happened. And, and Jesus had appeared to his disciples and, and then uh, was gone. And Peter's standing with some of the other disciples and doesn't know what to do. And he says, I'm going to go fishing. That's what he did. He was a fisherman. So they jumped in the boat and they fished and they didn't catch anything. And they uh, fish and fish, and suddenly there was a, a voice from the shore early in the morning that said, hey, throw your nets on the other side, and that sounded kind of familiar, so they threw their nets on the other side, and they caught this great haul of fish, 153 fish. God bless them. So they're counters, you know. Somebody counted those fish, and, and it wasn't a pastor because it would have been rounded up to 175 right off the bat. About the third time through, we'd have hit 200, you know. A lot of fish there, evangelistically speaking, you know, 200 easy. But there were 153 fish that they hauled ashore, but Peter was so excited to see Jesus that, you know, fishermen, they took their cloaks off to work and he put his cloak back on and dove into the water to swim to Jesus. He couldn't wait for the boat to get there. I don't know if you've ever seen a sweatshirt relay in a swimming pool, but it just fills up with water. And so Peter's slogging along. The boat's sort of staying with him as he is nearly drowning, getting to the shore. He gets to Jesus and Jesus is already fixing breakfast. Now, I love this because he didn't need their fish. He let them participate. He said, why don't you guys bring a few more and let's add it to this and We'll have this great meal, but he already had fish cooking when they got there. We don't know exactly where he got them. He was God, so, you know, go figure. But he's already cooking fish. You see, he doesn't need our fish. He, he doesn't need us to kind of help him out. He, he allows us to participate with him. 
So Peter is about to have his wake-up call. And, and in verse 15, we get the, the story. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then in verse 18, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young and used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will uh, stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You see, this is really important because Jesus is talking to Peter. And, and you know, of course, there's been a lot of discussion over the centuries was Jesus, because Peter denied Jesus three times. Was Jesus giving Peter a chance to affirm him three times? We're not exactly sure. And there's lots of talk about what are the, is it lambs and sheeps and the different words for love and all of those things in the Bible. But here's what we really, here's what we really know for sure is that Jesus was emphasizing this opportunity for Peter He was giving him a wake-up call. He was saying, Peter, do you love me? Because it's going to cost you everything. Peter, do you love me with your head? Do you love me with your heart? Are you willing to follow me no matter what it takes, no matter where it takes you? This is really important, Peter. And Peter has to answer this question. And we have to answer that question. And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And, and, you know, if, if Jesus were to come this morning. Oh, and he is here, actually, by the way. But if Jesus were to ask each of you this morning, do you love me? (laughs) What would you say? Lord, I I showed up today. I'm in church. Of course I love you. I'm one of the good guys. I'm on your team, Lord. I love you. And Jesus would say, you know, I, I know you love me in your head, but is it also the core of your heart? Do you you love me with a passion? Do you love me so much that you organize your life around that? That you make decisions based on that? That you have hope because of that? Do you really love me? That's what he's getting at with Peter because then he says, listen, Peter, when you were young, you could go wherever you wanted to go. But when you get old, you're gonna stretch out your hands And they're going to take your cloak and they're going to dress you in something else. And you're not going to have a say on it. But you're going to do that for my sake. And what we know from tradition is that Peter was crucified. He was crucified by the Romans, but when he went to the cross, he said, I I don't deserve to be crucified the way my Savior was. And they crucified him upside down. That's the tradition of the church. That Peter gave everything up to follow Jesus. He gave everything up because he loved Jesus. He gave everything up because one day he had a wake-up call and it moved from his head to his heart and he was passionate about Jesus. And the whole world is different today because of his passion for Christ. And Peter gave everything that he had for the sake of Jesus. 
And we read about him and we study him because of that. And so here's what Jesus said. You get it, Peter. It's in your head. It's in your heart. Now follow me. He didn't tell him where he was going to go. He didn't tell him what he was going to do. He said, it's just simply about following me. Will you follow me? Even when you don't know. Even when you're not sure what this is about. Will you follow me? And Jesus is asking us this morning, the the wake-up call for us is, yeah, maybe we know a lot about him, but are we passionate about him? Has it gone from our head to our heart? Does it change how we think? Does it change how we act? Does it change how we spend our time? Because we're passionate about Jesus, the Christ who loved us, who gave himself for us. You know, we talk about, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We believe that, that he died on a cross for us and he rose again. And that very idea of the resurrection, everything that we believe is built on that. And so if everything, uh, if the resurrection is true, then everything else that Jesus said is true. And Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He, he said, I'm going to give you a mission that's bigger than you ever imagined. He, he made lots of promises to us. He said, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. All of those things are true because the resurrection is true, but the problem with it for us is that the truth of the resurrection needs to go from our head to our heart because if I asked you this morning, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? I'm pretty sure you'd all say yes. But has it gone from your head to your heart? Has it changed? Has it given you a passion? Has it moved you to the point